good morning, Freedom Village Church. Uh, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I always hope that you do, have a copy of God's Word with you. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Uh, today is an exciting day uh, because today we're beginning a brand new sermon series um, where we'll be journeying through the book of Philippians. Right? I thought you'd never be able to guess what we're studying uh, in this next season, the book of Philippians. Which also means that uh, if you're new with us uh, today, again, this is, a, this is a great Sunday for you to be here. But before we begin, uh, let's pray for God's help uh, and wisdom. Let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would be with us today. Open our eyes and our hearts uh, to see Jesus. Uh, we acknowledge that what we need uh, more than anything, more than anything right now, God, What we need is a right picture of how beautiful, how holy you are. So help us. Use these words today, this teaching, for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I want to simply start by introducing the book of Philippians uh, to you. I'll be very brief. Um, And then we're going to actually transition into the book of Acts. And so if you're familiar with the New Testament, uh, you know that a very major and and central figure of it is a man named Paul. Uh, We're first introduced to Paul in the book of Acts. And when we meet Paul, we learn that he is a a, a murderous, uh, religious legalist who is bent on, uh, he is determined uh, to eliminate the church. Until one day, one day when he is on the road going to a city uh, called Damascus uh, to arrest the Christians that are there, that are worshiping there, he actually meets the risen Jesus on the road. Uh, It's an incredible story. He sees Jesus He actually goes blind as a result of encountering the glory of Christ. Uh, But then he gets converted right there on the spot. He puts his faith in Jesus. And his life from that point is personally changed forever. And he also is personally commissioned then by Jesus to be an apostle, to be a missionary for Jesus uh, and his church. Well, from there, what we learn is that Paul goes, right? He's a sent one. He goes, uh, and he travels around the the known world at that time, which uh, was the Roman Empire, right? And he became a a missionary focused on planting churches, specifically in urban centers. And we know that his strategy was fairly simple, pretty simple. Paul uh, would go into a city, He would preach the gospel. He would gather people together who responded to the gospel. Then he would establish a church in that city, raise up leaders for that church, anchor the community in the truths of the gospel, and then from there leave to go do it again in another city. And because Paul was also not just an apostle, but he was a a good uh, brother in the faith, he was a good shepherd, actually, a good pastor, we also know that Paul would write letters uh, to keep up with these churches that he planted. And he would write to to challenge them, to, to help them, to instruct them, 
to rebuke them and to encourage them. And so in the year 62 AD, uh, what we see is Paul writing a letter to a church in a Roman colony located in modern-day Greece. And today we call that letter Philippians because it was written to the church in Philippi. Uh, It's a beautiful letter, uh, but it's also really unique because of the 13 New Testament letters that we have from Paul, there could have been more letters that he wrote, but we have 13 of them. Of those 13, it's actually the only one, the only one that we have in which Paul is not writing primarily to uh, correct bad teaching or to rebuke bad behavior. Instead, what we see in Philippians is Paul writing with uh, intense warmth, joy, and and affection to encourage the church to make progress in their faith and to anchor them in the joy that is theirs in Jesus. Uh, It's got a lot to do with joy, the book of Philippians, which I believe is going to be so helpful for us because don't we all need some joy uh, right now? Uh, So from a Roman prison, Paul writes these words, this letter, again, with deep love. We're going to see that these are people that he genuinely, genuinely cared for. Uh, These were more than just, you know, his, uh, he wasn't just a pastor and these are just lay people. Uh, He was friends with these people. Uh, And just, just listen to how Paul begins this letter. This is Philippians 1. This is part of uh, verse 3, 4, and 5. I kind of mixed it together. But just listen to how Paul addresses them in this start. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Then he goes on to say, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Then he says, for God is my witness. Listen, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's so personal here. He says, I yearn for you all. It means to have a, a, a sincere, uh, deep uh, affection towards another person. It's actually such strong language. And notice he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And let's remember, um, it was the affections of Jesus that led him to give himself over to false arrest. It was the affections of Jesus for the world, for his uh, disciples, that led him to submit himself to torture, to submit himself to the cross, to submit himself to ultimately die in our place. And so Paul says very purposefully here, my affection for you, church, my affection for you, church, at Philippi, is somewhat like that just like Jesus. Paul was close to this church. I want you to see that. And don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. If you read all of Paul's other letters, clearly we know and believe that he loved all the churches he planted and all the people that he discipled. But he never quite talks like he does right here. And so 
as I was thinking about this sermon series, it just, this even made me think, like, how did Paul get here? Uh, what happened to make Paul feel this way about this specific church? Uh, what kind of, of history did Paul have uh, with these people that caused this uh, really close bond? And I think this is going to be really important for us to uh, understand, to uh, understand all of these things as we walk through Philippians together uh, in this season. Now, uh, fortunately, uh, Acts 16 actually records the planting of this church at Philippi. Uh, We know it's the first church that was planted in Europe, which is a pretty big deal if you know Europe's history with Christianity. Philippi, this church, is the first church in Europe. Uh, And we know that it was planted uh, during the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. And what happened um, on his missionary journey, this specific journey, is that Paul, you you read the accounts uh, uh, in Acts 16, but he keeps running into all these obstacles. He's facing all these trials and difficulties. Uh, We see that the Holy Spirit actually, right before our main text today, Right before this, the Holy Spirit prevents Paul from going north. He's trying to go north to teach the gospel there. The Holy Spirit's, nope, you're not going there. He tries to go south. The answer is no. Uh, he, he tries to go east. The answer is still no. And so one night, Paul has this dream. It says it's a vision. He has this vision uh, of a man from Macedonia. That's where Philippi is, by the way. And this man is calling out to Paul for help. Come help me. Come help us. And so Paul wakes up or he gets out of this vision. We see almost immediately he goes with his missionary team. They get into a boat and they start heading to Macedonia. And we begin from there. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11, which Amelia just read uh, for us a few minutes ago. So let's read this again, this part. Starting in verse 11, it says, So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So again, we see here Philippi was a major city uh, located along a major trade route, Okay, and then he goes on. We remained in this city some days. And then verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, we know that Paul's normal pattern when he went into a city was to always start by going to the Jewish synagogue. He always did that first. That was his strategy when he entered into a city. And that makes sense because we know that Paul himself was a Jew. He was a leader amongst the Jews, actually. And people who were in the Jewish synagogues were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So he would go to the synagogue and he would uh, show them how uh, the Old Testament uh, works and how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He would persuade them intellectually to come to Christ. So it makes sense he was there, or he would go there first. Uh, but we also know that it wasn't just the Jews uh, who were there gathering in the synagogues. 
uh, at this time. But also it included God-fearing Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, who made a decision to worship Yahweh, even though they weren't converting to Judaism. And it seems here from the text, uh, though, that there's no synagogue here in Philippi, which I think first tells us something of the spiritual climate there. Right? There is no representation there of Yahweh. Okay? So what does Paul do? He normally goes to the synagogue, but there's apparently no synagogue there. And so it says here in the text that apparently he shows up to a women's Bible study. Okay? And he meets a woman, a woman there named Lydia amongst another, a group of women. And Lydia will become the first member of this church plant. We're going to see that right here. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. So that means God-fearer, as I told you, God-fearing Gentile. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So let's talk about Lydia for just a moment. First of all, we see here from our our text, just a little context about her, what we learn here that Lydia is Turkish. It says that she was from Thyatira, which we know was in Turkey. And we also learn here that Lydia apparently was extremely wealthy. She's a dealer, actually, in purple goods, which at that time, you have to understand, purple was, the color purple, was extremely rare. It was extremely precious. Um, It represented, if you wore purple or you had purple, um, it meant luxury and royalty. And so you might say, if you're trying to think of our context here, you might say that Lydia would have lived in uh, Garasugil, okay, near Gangnam. She's a Beverly Hills girl, okay? Uh, We also learn here, though, that she was also very religious, Okay, she's at this Bible study, this prayer meeting, uh, likely a very moral person, uh, but she didn't know Jesus. And so now the Apostle Paul comes on the scene. He interrupt, interrupts their small group, and it says that the Lord opened her heart, that she came to faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, Uh, We don't know the extent of how the gospel gripped Lydia's heart that day. Uh, We aren't told. We just know that the Apostle Paul, uh, again, went into this prayer meeting, this Bible study. He he spoke. He engaged her intellect. The, The Lord opened her heart as only he could do, and it just clicked for her that day. The light bulb went on. Again, we don't know, but I'm sure... uh, The Apostle Paul just opened the Old Testament with these women that day and simply showed them how all of the scriptures point to Jesus. Every king, every priest, every prophet, every hero, every sacrifice, every story of redemption, it's all about Jesus. He likely told them that day that the Bible is not a book of rules It's not just a compilation of random stories. It's not primarily a book even about you and what you should be doing. 
It's about who God is, what God has done, and what he will do through his son, Jesus Christ. Again, I don't know exactly what Paul said to those ladies uh, that day, but we do know it was the gospel. And when Lydia heard it, she knew then and there that she was incomplete. And so she turned to Jesus. And maybe some of you, some of you listening to this, uh, this message, some of you watching online, some of you resonate with Lydia's story. Uh, you were living well. Nothing too, too dramatic going on in your life. But you heard the gospel, heard about Jesus. Nothing really sensational happened when you did. But you just knew that Jesus is what you needed in your life and for your life for fullness of joy. That's Lydia. So this is how the church in Philippi began. Paul showing up to a women's prayer meeting. Uh, engaging them rationally, intellectually, sharing the gospel, and then Lydia and her family believing in Jesus and being baptized. Uh, that's how things begin. Well, then we, we move to the next member of the church plant in Philippi. I'm going to share three members, but the next member of the church in Philippi, this church plant, we meet this girl in verse 16. It says this, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So this spirit of divination here, it's it's a demonic spirit, okay? She is a demonized slave girl. And as a result of this demon that has uh, come into her life, Uh, She has now some supernatural abilities to predict the future. That's what's going on here. And actually, we don't know much else other than her owners are using her, uh, using her and her power uh, to make a living, to earn money off of her power. Uh, But just as a quick aside, um, this does at least remind us, and I want us to be mindful of this, that not all spirituality is good. And even outside of that, uh, I want us to understand that not all like palm readers are just fakers. Right? I have the tendency to think that. You know, I'm walking through Seoul and I'll see the palm reading signs. I'm like, oh, it's just a gimmick, right? It's just they're just faking their future. No, sometimes, sometimes there are actually dark spiritual forces involved, and that's what we see here. Right? We need to be reminded. I think it's important for us to know and be mindful of the reality that Satan is active in our world. He's moving in our world, and he too works in supernatural and spiritual ways. And we see that in the life of this slave girl. But moving on, verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So what is she doing here? Well, um, she's actually not promoting them. She's not celebrating them. Um, We actually know that this is mockery. She's mocking Paul. She's mocking his team. She's mocking their message. 
Uh, she's not, again, she's not on their side. She's not uplifting the gospel. And, and it's continual. She's been following them around Philippi, giving them a hard time. And I love verse 18. It says this, And this she kept doing for many days. And then look at the side note. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, <laughs> turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, the text doesn't tell us specifically what happened with this girl after this. But I think it's safe to assume that she did become a follower of Jesus, particularly given the life that she was living, the bondage that she was living in, and the person who helped release her uh, in this very powerful way. In in other words, the chances are very high, very high, that this girl became a follower of Christ because she's just been rescued in a very radical and supernatural way. But what I want to highlight here is uh, actually the absolute contrast between this girl here, this uh, demonized slave girl who's been released from her bondage, this girl and Lydia. Uh, Lydia was wealthy and independent. This girl was poor and a slave. Lydia was moral and religious. This girl was demonized. Lydia was seeking the Lord. This girl was mocking the Lord. Lydia was, uh, had some influence, had some power in society. This girl is powerless. Right? Listen, we, we would expect Lydia to come to the church. Right? If we're being honest in our, in our modern day context, Lydia is the type of, type of woman who would walk through the doors and we would say, oh, that makes sense that she's here. But no one would expect this young girl to walk through the doors. Lydia seemingly had a nice life. This girl was at the bottom of the barrel. And get this, Lydia has the gospel grip her heart when Paul engages her intellectually. Whereas this girl is gripped when the gospel engages her spiritually. And maybe you're here again, watching today, listening in, and you resonate more with this girl than you do with Lydia. Uh, Maybe you weren't or aren't currently demonized, uh, but uh, your life either is now or once was a total wreck. Uh, You were caught in darkness. Maybe it was a, uh, a deep addiction. Or if you were like me, my testimony, maybe it was deep anxiety for you or deep depression uh, that was set upon your life. Uh, Maybe uh, in your past, you were caught in another uh, religion, worshiping false gods. Or or maybe you just worshiped the God of self or the God of comfort. But then there was that moment when God, in his way, uh, shook you woke you up, again, revealed his truth to you, his light to you, and you realize your need for radical grace. You realize that true life is found in entrusting your life to the one who made your life. So some people uh, meet Jesus through Bible study at the river, like Lydia. And some people meet Jesus 
because their life was a mess. <laughs> Uh, And some, maybe even more, uh, meet Jesus like this next guy. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. So what's going on here? The demon uh, leaves the girl, and the demon who helped this girl have uh, clairvoyance, right? Who has insight into the future. The demon's gone, meaning she can no longer tell the future, all right, she goes back to her owners. We don't know what happened, but she goes back to their owners, and they're like, um, so tell us, you know, tell us what's going to happen next, right? Maybe they were gamblers, and they're like, who's going to win the chariot race, right? Tell us. I don't know. You're supposed to laugh at that, okay? Tell us who's going to win the chariot race. And she's like, I don't know anymore, like, the, you know? They were furious. And so what happened? It says they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Really intense scene here. You'll notice this through Acts, actually. You can read these sections and go by them quickly, but um, it is very intense here. It's just an uproar. Paul and Silas, at least the two of them, they are beaten badly, severely broken here. They're imprisoned, and they're, it says that they're put in Roman stocks, which uh, were essentially, at that time, they're essentially uh, torture devices. And, and the whole goal with these stocks uh, was to make you uh, very uncomfortable and bring you just to the tipping point of intense pain. Right? It was miserable, and they would leave you there for days sometimes. Okay? But now look, even this situation, this circumstance, it couldn't steal Paul's joy. Not even close. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What a great scene we have here. Let's make sure that we understand this really clearly. So it's really late you can picture this scene. Um, Paul's uh, and Silas, their ankles are fastened into these wooden stocks spread apart. They're, they're sort of there, uncomfortable. They're, they're broken and yet, uh, you know, bloodied backs. Uh, and yet, what are they doing? Hard to believe it, actually. They're singing. Uh, it, it's midnight, and they are worshiping God together. Right? It's just an incredible scene. But we know, and if you're familiar with Paul, you're familiar with his story, you know that this is just Paul. This is Paul. His perspective was just so incredible, so remarkable. And why? Why? Well, because we know Paul knew who he was in Christ. He knew who he was in Christ. His foundation was secure. And who he was in Christ, knowing that, was enough for him in his life. And so we see this time and time again. If someone threatened death upon Paul... No problem. He would write this, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
They threatened to torture him. Okay, so death doesn't work. How about severe torture? And what did he say? Okay, no problem. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul had incredible perspective despite his circumstances. And so Paul and Silas are singing in this prison. And then they get a surprise. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And that's the ultimate question, right? What must I do to be saved? And then... And they said, they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. By the way, Uh, Whenever the Bible talks about belief, and we see that here, believe in the Lord Jesus, whenever the Bible talks about belief, it's not intellectual assent, okay? Uh, Belief means trust. And we see here the jailer believes. He trusts in Jesus, him and his household, similar to Lydia, actually. And just like Lydia, we see uh, the order of faith here as well. And it's always the same way uh, in the scriptures. There is faith in Jesus immediately followed by baptism as a public expression of faith in Jesus. And so that happens here once again. Verse 34, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Incredible, awesome testimony. So what we have here is is another radical, unique conversion story. That's really, uh, really, if you you dive into these stories, it's completely unlike the other two. Just a little uh, history here. I think it helps the context. But we know that jailers... Jailers, people who guarded prisons in the Roman Empire, were normally, in fact, almost always, they were retired Roman soldiers. Okay, so jailers or guards, uh, they they were basically like retirement jobs for Roman soldiers and for the guards. And I'm going to read uh, into this uh, just a little bit, but I think it's a safe assumption, okay? I think I'm safe doing this. I don't believe, looking at this text, knowing what we know about Rome, knowing what we know about guards at that time, I don't believe this jailer was sitting around, guarding this prison, contemplating the meaning of life. I don't believe he was sitting there as he's guarding these uh, criminals, or, or supposed criminals. I don't believe he was actively seeking truth in his life. This is a former Roman soldier, a tough blue-collar, 
middle-class worker, average, everyday citizen who was likely indifferent to God and the gospel. And so how does God get his attention? What causes the gospel to grab his heart? Well, we see here that God sends an earthquake, right? Pretty, pretty intense. And God will do this, right? He will do whatever it takes to get his people's attention, right? Look at Jonah, for example. He'll do whatever it takes. And as an important side note here, we know as well that in the Roman Empire, uh, that if a prisoner escaped or was lost under the watch of a jailer, you would pay for that loss with your life. That would be the penalty of somebody escaping or, or, or you losing someone under your watch. And, and when we know that, now we understand. That's why the jailer actually, he, he thinks they've all left, they've all escaped. And so his response naturally is to just take out his sword and to kill himself. Because he knew what the consequences would be uh, as a result of what happened that night, or thinking that they're all gone. And so this situation for him, it's a crisis. Right? All of the cell doors are opened. All the stocks have been loosened. Right? The prisoners are, are probably freed. But what does Paul do? It's fascinating. Does Paul reason with the jailer with his intellect? Does he show his spiritual power like, like he did with the girl? No. And I think this is so relevant to us living here in Korea, living with and amongst people who are mostly indifferent to Jesus and the gospel. How does Paul share the gospel? Well, it's simple. He shows them. (laughs) He shows the jailer the gospel. Paul and Silas are beaten, broken, bloodied, and suffering. And yet they are there, singing, praying, and praising God. That's their response to their difficult circumstance. And surely, surely, I mean, you got to imagine this picture. Imagine being the jailer. Surely the jailer is wondering here, what in the world is moving these guys to rejoice right now? They have no freedom, no comfort, probably in pain. But yet they have this deep, overwhelming joy that's pouring out of them. And where does that come from? But not only that, not only that, they could have escaped. They could have rightfully escaped. But notice, they don't. They don't. And they even tell, apparently, they even tell the other prisoners, do not leave. Don't leave. They actually, so what's that mean? That they actually put their lives on the line for the jailer's life. They repay his evil with good. They actually, what they're doing here is they're substituting their lives for his life. And so he is clearly, clearly, and understandably blown away by that. And so this guy, this jailer, goes from his average, probably uh, mostly comfortable, middle-class working life to saying, I want that joy. I want what you have. Tell me, tell me, what must I do to be saved? Listen, Paul and Silas 
showed the gospel. They lived in such a way that begged for an explanation. And so let me, let me summarize these stories. What we see here in Philippi is that Paul engaged Lydia through intellect. He engaged the demon-possessed girl with spiritual power. And we see he engaged the jailer through being a living witness to the joy, grace, and mercy of Jesus. And this becomes the core group, the core group for the church plant at Philippi. A a rich, put-together woman, a demonized slave, and a Roman jailer. It's hard to imagine a more diverse group. And let's be honest, only God could do this, and only God could bring this together, right? These people are from different places, meaning they are uh, of different races, different cultures, different social classes. Their needs were different, and therefore their testimonies were all different as well, right? Lydia experienced the gospel as a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, The girl experienced the gospel as a radical rescue. And now we see the jailer experience the gospel as a deeper comfort or a more complete joy in Jesus Christ. And so notice, notice how versatile the gospel is. Notice how versatile the gospel is in meeting these people as they needed to be met. The same gospel, but shaped based on context. It's beautiful, but this is what God does. He does this again and again. God redeems the unlikeliest, diverse, incompatible people and brings them together as a redeemed family for Jesus. And then he calls them his church. And that's what we and that's what we have here. That's who we are here at Freedom Village as well. Our gathering is made up of people from all over the globe. We have all sorts of different jobs here, all different ages represented, different situations and circumstances. And each of us has a unique testimony of how God radically transformed our lives and rescued us, saved us. This is God's church, and this is a reflection of God's kingdom here. So as we, as we wrap this up today, I, I hope now uh, we can understand, I hope now we can understand better why Paul says to the church in Philippi, I yearn, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Because Paul is talking to Lydia and her family here. He's talking to this slave demon girl who was once broken and forgotten and outcast in society. He's writing this letter specifically to the jailer and to his family. Paul personally helped rescue and save these people. He knows them. He knows their story. He was likely the one who baptized them. And now he's writing them this letter 10 to 15 years removed from the start 
of the church, and he's saying to them this. He's saying to them this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, Acts 16, from the first day until now. Paul is writing to them and to the rest of this church who had seemingly grown and flourished and were going after the things of Christ. And he's writing them to encourage them to pursue, to keep pursuing their deepest joy in Christ. This is the church at Philippi. Well, I want to wrap things up now uh, with just a few quick thoughts in light of all this, everything we've read in Acts 16. And, and maybe you choose to write these down. They're not going to be on the screen. But uh, first of all, from Acts 16, I, I want us to be encouraged by this story to do really two things. Number one, to, to revel or celebrate our diversity here. Let me write that down. To revel or to celebrate our diversity here at Freedom Village. Again, we know this. We are just, you know, come to this physical space and you will see, right? Uh, we are from all walks of life. And that's something that we should embrace. And at the same time, we should understand that beyond that, our primary identity is found in Jesus Christ and not in anything else. Which means, which means, why is that important? Because it means that we can be a family or we can be family with people who are not anything like us. Right? You know this, you know this, but we naturally relate to the people who are just like us. Right? We, we naturally do that. Right? It's easy to hang out with people who are just like you. I grew up in New York, so I'm a Yankee fan, right? It's, it's, it's only because of the gospel that I can spend time with people who like the Red Sox, right? I'm kidding. Right? But it's easy, it's easy, it's easy to be around people who are from the same place as you, who look like you, who talk like you, who work in the same place like you. That's natural for us. But let's understand that the gospel is not natural. It's supernatural, Right? The gospel goes past, it moves past our preferences to create a redeemed, diverse family of God. And therefore, we should embrace it. We should embrace it. I mean, honestly, apart from a supernatural work of the gospel, Lydia, there is no way that Lydia is doing life with the demon girl, the demon teenage girl. There's no way. But when the gospel comes into a city, and when the gospel comes and transforms hearts and lives, that is the natural result. Lydia does find family with the teenage girl and with the jailer. And so let's embrace, let's embrace our differences. Because again, it's a reflection of the kingdom of God. And then second, I want us to be encouraged by this story to do this, to, to trust the power of the gospel to save people as we live sent lives as missionaries in our city. I probably should have done you a favor and put that up on the screen. But I'll say it again. I want us to be encouraged to do this, to trust 
to trust the power of the gospel to save people. As we live sent lives as missionaries in our city. We know this, but I should still say it. We know this. We don't save people. The Spirit of God saves people by the power of God through the gospel of God. And so put your, we need to all put our confidence there as we lovingly seek to introduce Jesus to people in and around our lives. So church family, uh, reading the story of Acts 16, I want us to be compelled uh, to to live in such a way, uh, to live in such a way that begs for an explanation. Let's live in such a way where, where people are forced to ask, they're forced to ask, how and why Why in the world do you live this way? Right? And how we handle our time and how we handle the ups and downs that come our way in in the way that we approach our work, our our, our friendships, our family, our, our money, in the way that we approach drinking coffee at a cafe. Let's live in such a way where people say to us, you have to tell me, you just need to tell me, how can I be saved? I want what you have. Tell me. And honestly, this doesn't take much. It doesn't. It's mostly just about being available where you are. I mean, notice here in the story, notice only in one of these three testimonies, one of these three stories, was Paul out actively seeking to share the gospel. Just one time, and that was with Lydia. But the other times, it just happened along the way. It just happened as he was living his life, as he was going about his life. He had a discipleship mindset. And so let's live the same way. Let's be prepared. I mean, if if God, if God used or could use Paul in stocks, in prison, surely he can use you and me at our jobs, at our schools, in a cafe, even in the midst of a pandemic. Amen? Amen. Say amen in the chat uh, if you agree. All right, so, so this is the launch. This is the launch of the church that was planted in Philippi. This is the people who Paul was writing to. And I can't wait. I can't wait over the next several months together uh, to dive into this letter with you. Uh, Because this same gospel that created the church there is the one that created the church here. And so as we're moving into this season together, let's ask Jesus to give us uh, receptive hearts uh, and ask him to make us a people who exist first for his glory, but also who live for the joy and good of the people around us. Amen? Let me pray for us.